people are like, what did you do this week? And I'm like, well, I talked about race and class in America with James Baldwin texts with teenagers. Like, I love that I get paid to do that. Hi, I'm Alan Montecilio, and this is Balik Bayan, a podcast for Filipino-Americans. Christia Castrillo is an English teacher in San Francisco. She teaches 10th and 11th grade at Balboa High School. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. It's great for anyone interested in education, social justice, figuring out what's what's important to you as a Filipino when you're, you find yourself in places where there's no one who looks like you. Um, it's also great for anyone interested in thinking about cities and what it's like to be you know, part of a local community in, in a city like San Francisco that's um, changing so quickly. As always, if you like the show, uh, please do share it with your friends. I, I'm sorry it came out a day late, um, but please do let folks know and get in touch with any questions or show ideas you might have. I'm at talk at balikbayanshow.com. Okay, here's my conversation with Christian Castrillo, and I hope you enjoy it. So I was born in San Francisco, California, and I lived here till I was about 11. And then my mom and I moved to Manila. Um, we had a brief stint in Hawaii in between. And I lived in Manila till I was 17 um, and then returned to the States um, by way of New York um, on my own after that. So we've moved around a lot. Uh, what does your what does your mom do for work that kind of brought you to so many different places? So my mom escaped like a lot of Filipinos did at that time from martial law under Marcos. And so I actually was born just in time. She got on the plane six months pregnant, and that was when you could get on that pregnant. Um, my Lola had already relocated over here to start a new life to start over and have new opportunities, particularly as a woman who is coming from a really patriarchal society. For a lot of female professionals in the Philippines, the assumption is by the time you hit 40, your career's kind of done. Um, and even till now, that sexism is still in place. So my mom had worked a lot in tourism and hotels, but that wasn't necessarily why we moved. She, In her mind, she also moved me back because she wanted me to be more connected to our language and our culture. Um, and she, she wanted to try to raise me, um, there, um, and be, be fully immersed with family and culture. Um, and so that was, that was more of the bigger, that was, um, uh, the bigger pull. Um, but there were also some work opportunities too, that she thought she'd want to try. And why San Francisco specifically? Um, so my, my, my Lola had relocated here, um, and she first settled with some family friends. Um, and this is you know, maybe may very classic Filipino, but a long time ago when she was doing better, she had helped that family out in the Philippines. And of course, decades later, when my grandmother felt um, that my, when my grandmother needed um, somebody, another fa- somebody else's support to start over, they were the ones who were doing well here. And they lived in Daly City, which it was and still is a Filipino enclave. And so she settled here. What do you remember from what San Francisco was like when you were growing up? Damn. Um, so I grew up in the. Sunset. I know that's such like a loaded like. Well, because yeah, there's so much change. It's really and so loaded. Like, you yeah. Know? Um, it's really loaded um, because, um, you know. So for example, when I meet people who've been here for under five years, they tend to say something like, "Oh, I've never. I rarely meet locals, or I've never met someone born here," hmm. which is funny to us because locals. 
and I'm going to say locals generously, like people who've been here 15 years or more, um, mm -hmm. we tend to all know each other, right? Or people who grew up here tend to kind of maintain some social circle. Um, and so, you know, we're thinking like, we're also, a lot of us are still here, you know, we're not, we're not that endangered. Um, so I grew up in a neighborhood called the sunset. Um, and I would say that at that time, um, it was pretty diverse. It was mostly Asian, but it was more diverse than I would argue it is now. Um, even though, so I would say it was, you know, the range of people I was going to school with were Chinese, Vietnamese, Taiwanese, Filipino, Korean, Armenian. I remember going to school with European kids who still spoke a home language at home and were not at the point where they fully identified as white. I, that greatly influenced like my idea of who immigrants are because it was very common when we got picked up for one kid to speak German or Portuguese with their parents or one of their parents or someone to speak Tagalog or Mandarin. Um, and so that was super common. It was a very unique experience, um, and I, I look back on it fondly. Did did it seem unique to you at the time, or when did you realize it was unique? No, I didn't seem unique to me at all. You know, I just thought that that's what America was. I mean, and I still do because I choose to live here. Um, but it was only until I went to college in upstate New York that I realized that I had no idea how different other people's upbringing was in New York. I mean, in in throughout the United States. Um, because in all honesty, as a small child, it didn't even, I mean, I knew America was mostly white, but I didn't really get that because my upbringing was so international. You know, we were eating food from a different country every other day. Right, right. But then you go from that to, is it Bard College that you went to? Yes. Yeah, I did undergrad there. Yeah. Right. So I, I went to Reed College. So I, I'm not going to say it's the same thing, but like a very, I would assume, private liberal arts college where that is predominantly white, right? Yes. Yes. Um Bard specifically is also white and Jewish, European and Ju European Jewish. Yeah. Okay. So tell me a bit more about, I mean, what was that like when you first, you know, not just when you first walked into Bard, but that, that sort of transition? So I was at a place where at 17, I wanted to get as far as I could from what I knew to get away from toxic dynamics at home to get away from just, and I wanted change. Um, hmm. I felt like the Filipino American formula was to stay in California and kind of pick one of five approved majors by the average Filipino parent. And I just <laughs> did not want that. And luckily I have immediate family who did not think that way either and ultimately wanted me to do what made me happy. And so I, I went as far as I could, as far as my financial aid would take me and it took me there. It was a total clash. Um, so imagine I'm 17. I moved to New York by myself from the Philippines where I had lived mm -hmm. for the past seven years. And so I'd, I'd been back to the States, but to visit family in LA and San Francisco, not to, not to live. I'd never seen snow. And the first time it snowed, it was like a snowstorm and roads were blocked. And so they didn't pave the walkways for a while. I mean, and I, you know, and, and I, um, my roommate was um, Somali by way of Kenya. And we were just both looking out the window, like, what is this shit? Is this actually like, like how are we going to go to the cafeteria to eat? 
And we're just looking at each other like, this is madness. Like, why do people live like this? We just like could not figure it out. It was the funniest thing to us. And we were looking at all the other American kids. And I say American generally, or just West, you know, or even, I mean, even the European exchange students. And they're just like, you know, putting on all their gear and like super excited and playing it. And I'm like, no, like, why would you want to play in ice? Like this is, it's not enjoyable. I do not enjoy this. I just remember being super frustrated um, with the cold. Yeah, but it was a culture shock. And just to be clear, this, you're not moving to like Queens or New York City. Like, can you describe like what bar, like sort of the physical surroundings of where you are? Yeah, I mean, it's gorgeous. It's along the Hudson River. Um, you truly experience all four seasons. I mean, it's postcard, beautiful. But, you know, I was at at a school with largely upper class white folks. And then it was very interesting because out of the people of color, you were, it tended to be, you were either from the 1% or you were from a really working class family. So it was very jarring because generally speaking, people were international students, kids of diplomats, kids of, you know, corporate execs. And so they had had one very different kind, they had had a certain kind of upbringing, or they were students who had very little limited, like very limited knowledge, actually, of life outside of like their neighborhood or their city. um, Because they were considered kind of the cream of the crop to get into an elite school. I, I, I can remember the first year and a half of living there when I would go into New York City, I would count the Filipinos I saw. And I would get super excited when I saw another Filipino, like a Grand Central from the moment we got off the train to the point that I really had to, like at times I would approach them as strangers and want to talk to them because I was so anxious to speak Tagalog and I was so, I just wanted to make a connection. I was just so excited to see someone who looked like me. What was nice was over time, I did meet, you know, the the Filipino American community in New York and New Jersey. Um, Ironically, we had some distant, we had some relatives who moved from Batangas, which is a province outside of Manila to Jersey City. And so over time, I built, I definitely built community, um, mostly outside of the Filipino community. Um, yeah, it was it was a lot. So for example, the first I think it was like one of the first holiday breaks, maybe it was Thanksgiving or something. I didn't have um anywhere to go really and I didn't want to stay on campus. And I wasn't we weren't in a place where I could afford to go all the way back to San Francisco after basically just getting there. One of my really good friends to this day, her name's Adeline. She's Dominican, grew up in the Bronx and um she's she invites me home. And I had never spent time in the Bronx before. Of course, I I knew about the Bronx in terms of my love for hip hop, but I mean, I had never been there. And I go spend the the week with her, and you know, we spend time in in and out of the city. Pretty much in her neighborhood, you're either Dominican, Puerto Rican, Chinese, maybe Haitian, maybe African, but largely African American. So they had no idea what a Filipino was. Most people would literally look at me and they would be trying to figure out what combination of those things I was because they had no idea what a Filipino was. And um, it was awesome. And so that was part of my, um, my introduction to New York was basically being adopted by a Dominican mother who didn't speak any English. And I did not speak Spanish. And at the same time, the most comforting thing in the world was eating like 
really heavily salted, saucy, like meat dishes and fried fish and plantains and rice. I mean, we don't really eat plantains in the Philippines in the same way, but it was so close to what we might make. I still, I mean, it was amazing. It was the most at home I had felt in so long to be in like an Islander woman household. Yeah, I mean, I was I was about to ask, but you kind of got to it. What was it about being the only Filipino in that context that felt so much more comforting than, say, being, you know, the only Filipino at, or not, maybe not the only Filipino at Bard College, but kind of in the college setting? There were six at most over the course of the five, the four years. Um, one, one year, there were six of us, uh, most of whom were mixed. <laughs> I remember us counting and just kind of laughing. Um, you know, what's interesting is when you don't have a lot of members of your community, you suddenly have to reflect on what exactly it is that makes you Filipino and what it means to even be Filipino at all. Um, because suddenly you don't take it for granted. And whenever I would, you know, visit my grandparents and, and come back to the Bay, that would be my biggest reflection. You know, I mean, Filipinos here don't can take for granted that they can see people who look like them, um, you know, in San Francisco, even have their, their children or their nieces and nephews part of a program um, where, where they practice Filipino dance or learn Tagalog or learn about Filipino history in some form. Um, our food is readily accessible. Our ingredients are readily accessible. It's, it's interesting. You, I found myself looking for cultural connections in people who came from completely different diasporas, people who are from Puerto Rico or Dominican Republic or Haiti or Jamaica. And those are the people I found myself connected with most in a lot of ways, just in terms of like, hey, where do I buy coconut oil? Or how do you all cook this thing? I am like permanently indebted to Black folks for teaching me how to take care of my skin in the winter when I lived in New York. Um, so you find yourself like, you you stretching across culture in new and unique ways um, that I don't think I would have had to do had I stayed in a place where there were a lot of Filipinos. Did you know that you wanted to live in San Francisco again during that time or after that time? Or what brought you to from, from that context to the Bay Area? I did not. I was planning on staying in New York, and the plan was to move to Brooklyn. I had a friend who already had a room where I could have taken, um, should I have stayed. I returned to San Francisco for a couple of reasons. One, I was in love with someone who was over here at the time. So that's always the big, re that's another big uh, motivator for why humans travel from one end of the world to the other. Uh, my mom had moved back here after living in different parts of Southeast Asia. And my grandparents had a couple of years before that moved back to San Francisco. So in different ways, all my grandparents and my mom, they all found themselves back in San Francisco. They genuinely love this city, you know, as a family unit, but, but more so as individuals. All four of us were the kind of people who would go on walks throughout this city for hours at a time by ourselves. That was just something we all liked to do. And so what point in all of this, as you're telling me, does education and teaching, where does that come in here? Did that happen later on or is that something that was always present in some form? I had um, no idea I wanted to be a teacher. It was never a plan. One experience that stands out to me is I, vis I was put in touch with an educator who is now one of my very good friends. He is still an educator and his name is Art Concordia. And I was 19 and I was invited to visit his 
social studies classes, which at the same high school that I now teach at, I teach at Balboa High School here in San Francisco. And basically, it changed my life to see someone, but particularly also a Filipino, Filipino American, um, do a job where he did not feel he ever had to hide or play down his life as a community activist or hide his politics or his critiques of capitalism and essentially really be himself um, and practice his politics in such a tangible way. Seeing teachers like that basically made me think, this is the kind of work I want to do. I want to do a job where ultimately I am myself um, and I don't have to pretend to be some, I don't have to make what I feel are moral, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I just, I didn't want to... Compromises? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, of course, at the time, I was probably using more simplistic language in terms of selling out. But ultimately, I didn't want to compromise what I believed in and who I was. I think teachers tend to fall in one of two categories. And it's usually like a 60-40, I think, where either they're more motivated by the intellectual work or they're more motivated by the role of elder, like paternal or maternal energy. And ultimately, you need both and so much more to be an effective teacher. But I tend to see that people are pulled by either one or the other a little bit more. And I am definitely pulled more by the intellectual side of things. I genuinely like nerding out on the material. People are like, what did you do this week? And I'm like, well, I talked about race and class in America with James Baldwin texts with teenagers. Like, I love that I get paid to do that. What do you, what do you remember from year one? Uh, oh, God. Um, Year one of full-time teaching, I will, I will, it wasn't my first year in schools, but my, my first year of full-time teaching, um, I mean, I was sick all the time. I was exhausted. I sacrificed largely every element of my personal life because I, am, I wanted to be really good. And that's my own personality. I, there was a minimum of how, of how competent I felt I needed to be and how much curriculum I needed to build. And so for me, I put that first and I kind of put everything else as second. So I was really exhausted. Yeah. Most people I know who are teachers and I know like year one in most jobs is hard. Most people I know who are teachers tell me in some form that the first year is really, really challenging and kind of in, in different ways. It seems like for you, it was it seemed like it became an all consuming thing because you wanted to just to do a really, really, really good job. Mm hmm. I mean... There are so there are so many specifics, and so the schools that I was choosing to work at within public schools in San Francisco, my students had immense needs. My students were coming into the classroom with immense levels of trauma, just in terms of what they were surviving in their lives, um, immediately in family, friend, um, neighborhoods, and then also as young people of color with really fractured self identity, a lot of self hate, a lot of just lack of knowledge of themselves, of their history, of what they came from, of what their families and their ancestors have come from. And so really defeated, a lot of young people with a really defeated sense of self, they had learned about themselves as people who'd been enslaved or colonized and taken advantage of or, or disenfranchised or talked about as being from a bad place to live. And when you are one of the, one of the few teachers especially earlier on in their, in their learning, who is finally saying, no, you come from greatness. You know, you're, you're being put down, you're being oppressed is not, is not what defines you as a person. 
there's a lot of growing pains in that because by the time we get them, I teach 10th. And so by the time I get them, they're 15. They have not had the gift of having teachers who teach them to love themselves by the time they're 15. There's a lot of unlearning to do. So where does um, uh, teaching English specifically come into all this? For me, it was a no-brainer because I had been, I've had always, I've identified as a writer from the time I was really young. Um, so I've always, I've always been a writer. I've always had d- different writing projects since I was a teenager or a little publishing, you know, things here and there. So it's a, it's a core part of my identity. Um, and the reality is most of my writing has always been in English. English is the dominant language in which I express myself now. Um, I love writing is number one. Number two, writing for me was such a crucial part of how I overcame a lot in my own life. It was my coping mechanism that I identified for myself. And so my primary agenda is not just teaching young people how to read and write and of course those super basic skills, but it's actually to teach them to write as a as a solid, as a coping mechanism that hopefully they can use over the course of their lives. Um, and because at the end of the day, of course, like reading and writing skills are going to be so critical to their ability to defend themselves, to take care of their families, to look out for themselves, make sure they're not getting taken advantage of, all of those things. How, how much does what San Francisco is like now, how much it's changed, what it's becoming, does that kind of come into your, your classroom? Definitely. Um, I live in the Excelsior, and this um, neighborhood has been... So it, how do I put it? Gentrification hasn't aggressively touched us up until very recently. There are five, I think, and counting new condos um, in the neighborhood, all within within a five block radius of the school. So this neighborhood is going to look drastically different in the next five to ten years in ways that I think a lot of us are still trying to wrap our heads around, um, because this neighborhood is a largely immigrant families, a lot of people of color, a lot more people of color than other parts of San Francisco, very Filipino, very Asian, and very mixed. So it's extremely common for kids to be Mexican and Salvi here, or Black and Samoan, Black and Filipino. Those are, you know, Italian and Mexican. It's That's like, those are classic Excelsior mixes. Um, in my classroom, this year, the average kid, roughly, I mean, I didn't count, you know, but but I would say the average kid said they were four ethnicities, Filipino being one of them. It's extremely common in this neighborhood. Um, it, it's very similar to Hawaii, I think, if, if for anyone who's ever been there. Um, so the neighborhood is changing. I've been at this school for, I guess this is year seven, and it's common that after the first semester, so halfway through the year, I lose a lot of students to gentrification. Um, the anxiety and the stress that enters my classroom is often related to gentrification. It's kids saying, I'm now commuting from two hours away, or we're, we had to move in with this auntie, or, and, you know, where we moved into with this ma- family member for this amount of time. We're trying to see if we can find a place we can afford because we got evicted or because the homeowner is selling and, and we can't fight it. So the, the demographics are, of SFUSD are changing. The majority of our school is still people of color, um, our students, I should say. Though it did used to be a far more black and brown school, and now it's increasingly, the the numbers are shifting. And the kids are constantly talking about gentrification. They're constantly talking about how expensive food is, 
what parts of town they feel comfortable in versus what parts of the city they do not feel comfortable in and where they feel very policed. But yes, gentrification and, 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 and the ability, some of them are very interested in entering tech. Um, and so the question becomes, how do we equip them to deal with the rumored racism and sexism that awaits them in that field? And that being said, those isms exist in a lot of fields. It's not as if the the tech world is the only place where the patriarchy is really bad. (laughs) So, but, you know, we are concerned. And I think a lot of the students and families are definitely shifting to consider, oh, what, what after school programs or what skills is my kid going to need to be able to find a job and stay here? It's very common now for our students to say that, you know, they don't really see themselves raising kids here because they don't see how they could ever afford. Early at the beginning, you mentioned you grew up in the sunset and that it, it's a lot more, it was a lot more diverse then than it is now. Um, what's it like to, to walk around there now for you? Um, I would say the sunset and the Richmond just are, by, by diverse, I mean now it's, it. There aren't as, it's not as ethnically diverse. So, it, I mean, maybe to someone who's moved here from the Midwest, it looks diverse, but actually it's more like two to four ethnicities as opposed to 10 to 15 um, in terms of the main groups. What's it like for me now? I guess I feel so much more at home culturally on the Southeast side of the city than I do on that side of the city. And this is also the influence of New York. Just the food and the culture and the warmth is more appealing to me. Um, and this is where I work and where I, where I live. I tend to feel that a lot of San Francisco has, feels very sterile. It feels like neighborhoods where neighbors don't necessarily get to know each other as well. There isn't as, oh, people aren't as open um, with one another. And in that sense, it's very American in some ways. It feels like a very American quality, I think, at least when I think of how I felt coming to America when I moved back here. Um, in so many other parts of the world where I've lived, it's just so common for people to kind of be in each other's business all the time. And I think for Filipinos, when we go back, we're like, oh my God, this is like the level of chismes and the level of family drama is like exhausting. Um, but at the same time, there's like this, there's also this constant care and there's this constant sharing of food and like resources that comes hand in hand with the people being in your business all the time. And what I would say about us as a people, you know, is you can't really have one without the other, right? Like your auntie or your mom or whatever, your uncle, they show up and they like bring you food or they bring you some random household items you didn't ask for. And with that also comes like, so who are you dating or what are you yeah. doing? And oh, what do you, you lost think about this? Yeah. And commenting about your body when you didn't ask for any of those comments, you know, all those things. And I mean, and you, you don't get one without the other. And there's a lot of that in this community. I just, the, the, I guess the, the families and the cultures that tend to live more on this side, it's more black and brown, just, I, I mean, that's just, I guess, you know, we socialize differently. I mean, I love this city. I love that our city is so small and yet the neighborhoods all have their own unique flavor. The fear is that as a result of gentrification, you're not getting the range of flavors. You're getting more or less the same chain supermarket, the same chain stores, the same kind of watered down versions of different ethnic foods. And with that, you lose the relationship, you lose the excitement. 
You lose the conversation you might not have asked for when you go to the Yemeni mini mart or the Vietnamese pho place and, and everybody is kind of your uncle. And with that amazing food, of course, comes like the little dramas here and there. But like, that's the beauty of living amongst different people from all over the country and all over the world is those hilarious, often completely inappropriate exchanges that you just don't get, you know, at a Whole Foods. All right, so I want to use this break to ask you to call me again. Uh, Last month, it was about nicknames, but this time I actually want questions. One thing you'll hear later on in this episode with Christia, and and something that I've heard from many people, is that lots of you want to know more about the pre-colonial history of the Philippines. In fact, that probably includes a time when we weren't the Philippines at all, since we did get that name from King Philip of Spain. It's a topic I'm interested in too, but there's, there's so much to talk about. So... What's one part of pre-colonial Philippine history that you really want to know about? Let me know at talk at balikbayanshow.com. You can write a message or submit a voice memo, or you can leave a voicemail at 971-800-1389. And I'll try and find someone to answer your question. Again, talk at balikbayanshow.com and 971-800-1389. All right, back to the show. Okay, it's time once again for the Phil Am lightning round. Um, by now, you probably know uh, what's coming. So question one, do you have a nickname? I am the rare Filipino who doesn't really have a nickname. My mom gave me one name, which is Christia. The story behind it is that you can say it different ways, and I say it different ways myself. So Americans say Christia, and Filipinos say Christia. And so the, the, the story of my name is essentially that, like, you know, it's said different ways. And when I moved back to the States at 17, I started pronouncing my name, my name the Filipino way. And I started pronouncing my name the Filipino way because I missed my grandmother and I missed my people. And I realized that there was a warmth that I felt when my name was pronounced Christian that I just missed. And so I started introducing myself to all the American kids at Bard as Christian at that age. I had one nickname in sixth grade when I first moved to the Philippines that did not stick. And because my name is Krishna, some a group of girls who I was hanging out with called me Cha Cha. And that really only stuck within that circle. It never really went okay. anywhere. Yeah. That's the closest I got. Okay. Well if it helps I don't have a nickname and because my parents just wanted to have one nickname or have one yeah. name. Um, one name, yeah. yeah. So are you Christian in San Francisco just generally when you introduce yourself to someone now? Yes, and from 7 to 3.30, I am Miss Christian to, <laughs> to 200 kids. <laughs> okay, that's great. Um, how do you feel about karaoke? I am not a big karaoke person. Yeah. Yeah, my, my family is into it. I mean, granted, I didn't really, my extended family, I should say. My mom and I, my mom and I didn't really do karaoke growing up. That was like mm-hmm. the thing that, was happening at the Filipino party, but then we were like somewhere else talking. Yeah. You're just never know. quite really feeling it. Yeah. And the funny thing is I actually have a really good voice. My mom, my mom always wanted me to pursue singing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's funny because I always think one of these days, maybe I'll actually do it with like my own friends. And if they've never heard me sing, they'll probably, they'll be like, oh, I had no idea you could sing. Which is kind of funny. Now you make me want to do it almost. 
So um, on a scale of 1 to 10, you mentioned you speak Tagalog regularly earlier, but on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, 1 being kind of non-existent, 10 being fluent, uh, how would you rate your mastery of, of both Tagalog and then maybe any, any other dialects that are relevant to you? Um, I'm a city girl, so I only speak Tagalog. I would say okay. 9. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Then it gets into skill level because my, my, my best Tagalog writing is probably an 8th grade level. Okay. Whereas, have you, you know. have you been speaking Tagalog your whole life or is this something you picked up later on? I picked it up when we moved to the Philippines. I had to okay. become fluent right. really fast because they kept clowning me. Yeah. They kept clowning you? Who's yeah. they? The, the other school? kids. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I needed to, I needed to be yeah. able to yeah, handle myself. Um, right. the, 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 the structures of the language were there, but like a lot of Filipinos raised in, outside of the Philippines, if um, our, my parents did not, my family did not fully immerse me in the language. And so mm-hmm. um, I had a loose framework. And then when I moved to the Philippines within six months, um, I was functional. And then within a year, I was definite, I was fluent. Nice. Yeah. How, how have you kept it up then in, as an adult? So sadly, my grandparents have passed away. They were a big, mm. so they were, um, they were big. Um, my mom and I speak Tagalog a lot. Ironically, we speak more Tagalog with each other when we're traveling outside okay. of the U.S., which is really funny. So, for example, this summer we were in Italy and we just spoke Tagalog the whole time. Um, basically, because she's just talking shit about people and she doesn't want people <laughs> to understand. The funny part is there's hell of Filipinos in Italy, so... There are hell of people on the bus can totally understand what you're saying. Um, yeah, so I speak with my mom, and I also speak with my students. Um, I have a lot of Filipino students um, and parents. Um, I live in the Excelsior, so I get to speak Filipino in the neighborhood. Um, but I have to say I don't have a lot of friends who speak. A lot of my friend, most of my friends are not fluent in any Filipino language, um, the ones who are, ironically, um, they're Cebuano or they're Bisaya, you know, they're, they speak Ilocano. So we don't even speak the same home language to practice. What's one book you think should be in all or most kind of English classrooms, but isn't? Oh, damn. Um, so I start off my school year with chapter, with an adapted version of chapter one by pedag- uh, from Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. But in terms of American literature, the first piece that my students are looking at right now is Letter to My Nephew by James Baldwin, which is written in 1962. And then if you are familiar with the work of Ta-Nehisi Coates, Ta-Nehisi is, you know, um, not to take away from his individuality, and he's an amazing writer, is often called the James Baldwin of our times. Right, because he starts off between the world and me, isn't it? Start as yes. like, mainly a letter to his son. Exactly, it's framed after James Baldwin's essay, um, and so I think that essay—it's not a book, but um, I think that essay um, is a great place to start to engage young people of any background as to what this country is built on, what it can offer, um, what it's done to people. Um, yeah, I think it's a great place to start talking about all the ways in which we move around um, and negotiate power in this country as people. Would you live in the Philippines again someday? Oh, you know, it's so funny because I was just there and so many people asked me that question. Not right now. It, it's not where I want to be right now. Could I see myself living there? Yes. Um, one of the reasons why I didn't go back, even though it was my plan after undergrad, 
was because, frankly, Filipino society for a woman is a really challenging place to be still. And in a lot of ways, I am not, I'm still not confident as a woman in my 30s that I'm just, I'll say this, like, in any professional space, I'm going to deal with ageism and sexism and, 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 and those things. And I'm just not confident that I could go back there and that I would be, not that I can, I, I'm confident that I could deal with the sexism in the workplace, but I'm not so confident that I would be happy trying to negotiate for the level of respect I feel that I deserve as a woman every day from getting to work, from hopping into a jeepney to trying to find work that satisfied me. And that's really the main reason why, which is not the answer most people expect. I think for a lot of Filipino Americans, it's like, oh, I, you know, I don't want the heat or it's just too religious. Or, I don't know. They, or the, the gender roles are too you know, um, confining for a lot of people. And that's part of it. But for me, I'm just not that confident that I would be happy navigating the weight of that in my professional life there. I'm not so sure. Um, one last question for you. Uh, what's one thing about the Philippines you wish you knew more about? I mean, one thing I would, I've always wanted to learn more about, and that is, I took a lot of time to study, but there's so many gaps um, in it, is our pre-colonial history. Um, there's a lot of academic research and work on it, but there's still a lot of gaps and holes in the work that's been done, particularly about particularly around the roles of women and queer folks in leadership structures. I teach a story called Sugar and Salt by the, Philippi- the exiled Filipino writer Ninochka Rosca in my, cl- in my 10th grade class. Um, and her story, I highly recommend. I feel, like, I feel like that one short story has taught me more about the resilience and the, just the unique adaptability of Filipinos than any other historical text. And ironically, it's arguably historical fiction. But in a way, I feel like that short story is like the, has been the most important Filipino history lesson of my, of my life. Krista, thanks so much for, um, for making time and doing this. You are very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks again to Christia for talking with me, and uh, thank you for listening to Balik Bayan. If you haven't already, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your shows. If you'd like to get in touch, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at Balik Bayan Show. You can also listen to the show at BalikBayanShow.com, and you can email me at talk at BalikBayanShow.com. Balik Bayan is produced by me, Alan Montesilio. Theme music by RV Mendoza and Blue Dot Sessions. The show's logo is by Nicolo Pizarro. I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode, and thanks again for listening.